According to the Anxiety and Depression Association of America, so that must be a hard place to work, right? The Anxiety and Depression Association of America, according to them, anxiety is the body's way of telling us that something is wrong. But when anxiety becomes overwhelming and persistent or interferes with our regular daily activities or even makes them impossible, then anxiety is not just anxiety, anxiety is a disorder. So the term anxiety disorder refers to psychiatric disorders that involve extreme worry, including general anxiety, social anxiety, panic attacks, and agoraphobia. So the irrational fear of open places, crowded places, or even leaving your own home. And again, according to the Anxiety and Depression Association of America, anxiety disorders are the most common and the most pervasive mental disorder in the United States, which impacts over 40 million people in the United States alone each and every year. Now, you might be thinking that must be the result of our current culture, meaning the speed of life, the intensity of work, the amount of information at our fingertips through our phones, and the extreme level of stress that we see as normal can certainly explain away the pervasive disorder called anxiety experienced in these 40 million people's lives. Here's what's fascinating. I found a Time magazine article published in 1961 that gave the exact same results only more pointedly. It states that the breakdown of faith in God and of reason coupled with the accelerated pace and high tension of modern life has produced intense anxiety in millions of people. In fact, Time says it's accurate to call worry one of the most widespread debilitating ailments of our time. That was 1961. Article goes on. The growing statistics of murder, suicide, alcoholism, and divorce all highlight the problem of anxiety. Not to mention the limp, the second pack of cigarettes, the third martini, the forgotten appointment, the stutter in mid-sentence, and the wasted hour watching television along with the spanked child. All of it. It all highlights the very real, very serious, very consistent problem called anxiety. So here's the question. What do we do about it? Well, according to Time, 1961, the only solution is sedatives, medication, and psychiatry. And today, according to the Anxiety and Depression Association of America, they say the exact same thing. Psychotherapy, behavioral treatment, and medication. That's the only way to handle it. Doesn't seem like we're making much progress between 1961 and today. Fortunately, the Bible offers an entirely different, and I would suggest far more effective cure. Hence the title for my sermon this morning, God's Remedy for Anxiety, because that's exactly where Jesus goes next in the Sermon on the Mount. So if you would, go ahead and open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 6. It's on page 811, if you're using one of the Bibles in the chairs in front of you, I encourage you to grab a Bible, grab my outline, God's Remedy for Anxiety, three points this morning, trust God's provision, prioritize God's kingdom, and embrace God's timing. Now, as you're turning, 
let me remind you of where we're at in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5, Jesus doesn't lower the bar for righteousness, but he raises it. And he says to us, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you cannot, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. So you have to understand, as we start this morning, that the only way to have a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees is to put your faith in the Lord Jesus so that your sins can be paid for, so that you can be completely forgiven and his righteousness can become your righteousness. Please know when you do that, when you put your faith in Christ and you're given the gift of the Spirit, your life will change. It has to change. So you can actually do the things that God is commanding of us in the Sermon on the Mount, which includes living for the glory of God rather than the praise of men. That was Matthew chapter 6, 1 to 18. It includes loving the Lord rather than money, chapter 6, verses 19 to 24. And it includes seeking the kingdom rather than suffering, struggling with worry, anxiety, and fear. That's our passage this morning, Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 to 34. If you would follow along as I read, I am going to start in verse 24 to give us a running start. So Matthew 6, verse 24, Jesus says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you being anxious can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Now, do you hear how Jesus is arguing? I mean, he starts with, A, the command to not be anxious in verse 25, right? He he says, do not be anxious about your life. That's a command. But then he starts arguing, giving you two reasons not to be anxious along with two illustrations to not be anxious, followed by another command and then another command to not be anxious with two more reasons. So he's fighting. He's fighting for your thoughts. He's arguing that you think rightly. But you might say, I thought we were talking about feelings this morning. I mean, isn't that what worry and anxiety and fear are? Aren't they feelings? Well, of course they are. But Jesus knows that right thinking leads to right living, including right feelings. 
So the first thing you need to do is ask yourself, what am I feeling? And if you're feeling worry, anxiety, and fear, then you need to ask yourself, what am I thinking? So am I thinking rightly? Now, why is that so important? Well, because healing a troubled soul, what the Bible calls sanctification, begins in our minds. So the transformation of our lives begins with the renewing of our minds, Romans 12, 2. So only when we think rightly with minds instructed by the Word of God can we ever live rightly with godly actions, attitudes, emotions, and yes, feelings that are really, truly, actually glorifying to God and worthy of the kingdom of heaven. Right thinking leads to right living. Second thing I want you to notice is how verse 25 starts with therefore. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. There's the command. Do not be anxious about your life. But the question we need to ask is what is the therefore, therefore? So what's the connection? Well, the connection is back to what Jesus just said, verses 19 to 21. Because transient earthly treasures do not last. Verses 22 to 23, because spiritual vision is easily darkened. Because verse 24, you can't serve God and money. In summary, because God demands unwavering loyalty to his kingdom, therefore, verse 25, do not be anxious about your life. Specifically, don't worry about essential things like food and clothing. So be clear. Jesus has been minimizing the significance of possessions the entire time, essentially saying, do not be materialistic. But can't you just imagine someone sitting there in the crowd who's actually poor and needy? And they're saying to themselves, Jesus, that's really not my problem. My problem isn't riches and treasures. It's just the essentials. So it's all well and good that you rebuke the wealthy from laying up their treasures on earth, but I've got a wife and kids at home, and I'm barely getting by, just trying to put food on the table, clothes on their backs, and a roof over their heads. What exactly are you saying to me, Jesus? But notice, Jesus doesn't shrink back, not for a second. He doesn't apologize and say, I'm so sorry. You're right, disregard my comments regarding your heart orientation towards stuff. He doesn't say that. But instead, he commands. He commands. He calls and commands that no matter how poor and needy you are, you're still not to be anxious. Because anxiety flows from having your priorities in the wrong place. Like letting the essentials suddenly become master over you. Which brings us to be. Reasons to not be anxious. At the end of verse 25, Jesus says, Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? The obvious answer is, of course it is. But that doesn't mean that food and clothes aren't important. Of course they are. But Jesus is dealing with priorities, specifically kingdom priorities. So the Christian is not indifferent to eating and drinking clothes and shelter. Those are necessities that we need to live in this day and age. But listen very carefully. They are not to become masters over us. Here's the connection. Look at verse 34 or verse 24. No one can serve two masters. You cannot serve God and money. Verse 25. Yes, but what about the essentials? Jesus says, don't be anxious even about the essentials. 
and do not make them the essentials, food, clothing, and shelter, your master. So the Christian must learn, number one, that life is about more than the physical. In fact, Jesus goes on to say, verse 33, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness because all these things, all these things, what things? These physical things, food, clothing, shelter, physical things will be added to you. So what's he saying? He's saying the spiritual is so much more important than the physical. So be consumed not with food, clothing, and shelter, the essentials, but be consumed with the kingdom of God. Focus on it. Be dedicated to it. Fix your affections on it. Tether your heart to it and make it the anchor of your soul because it's eternal, whereas the earthly is going to pass away. To borrow the phrase from verse 19, it's the stuff that moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. Do not allow it to be your master. So reason number one, your life is about more than the physical, which brings us to illustration number one, the birds of the air. Verse 26, just look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than the birds? Notice what Jesus is doing. He's arguing from the lesser to the greater. So if it's true that God really does provide for the birds, which he does, then how much more will he provide for you? Why would he do that? Because you're more valuable than the birds are. God made you in his image. God sent his own dear son to die for your sins, not for the sins of the birds. Think about what Paul says in Romans 8, 32. Paul says, if God is for us, who can be against us? For he who did not spare his own son, but freely gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? All things, including food and clothing and shelter. You know, I remember when this hit home for me. I was in seminary working full-time, going to school full-time. My kids were six, five, three, and one. And we literally had no money, like no money. Maybe we had, at most, $500 in the bank. And the van that we were driving at the time was a van that was given to us. It was a Dodge Caravan. It was completely rusted out. In fact, my kids loved to kick the side of the sliding door and watch the rust fall on the driveway, and I would yell at them, Stop kicking the door! They would just giggle and run away. But I remember studying the Sermon on the Mount. I was in a Sermon on the Mount class. I was studying this passage. And I remember studying at the library. And I'm sitting there, and I'm reading this passage, and I look out the window. And here there are all these birds. They come, and they scratch, and they peck at the ground, and they pull up worm after worm, after worm. There's robins and cardinals, blue jays, sparrows, thrushes, all these different kinds of birds. And I remember thinking to myself, God obviously takes care of the birds. Not one of them is lacking. 
not in anything. And the truth is, neither are we. We've got food, we've got clothes, we've got shelter. God's providing me with a job. I only was given one offer when I went to seminary. I applied to lots of different jobs. I got one offer, but I had a job. I was making money. I was providing for the needs of my family. And he had given me transportation. He had given me this junky old Dodge Caravan, not maybe what I wanted, but certainly what I needed. And I drove that junky old caravan until the brakes went out on my way of work. I had no brakes halfway to work. And you know what I did with that junky old Dodge Caravan? I sold it to a guy for 300 bucks. And he fixed the brake lines and he continued to drive it. And I'm out of a car. That day, one of my friends offers me his car. God provides. And he continues to provide. You see, the conclusion is inevitable. We are absolutely more valuable to God than the birds. And if God feeds them, will he not make sure to feed us as well and to take care of us in all of our basic needs? He will. So here's the hard part. If that's true, which it is, and you know it is, then isn't your constant worry And your anxiety about God's provision for your life, food and clothing, a job, a place to live, the basic necessities of life, whatever those are, isn't your anxiety, your worry then, a total affront to God? Because aren't you essentially declaring through your worry, through your anxiety, that He can't or He won't take care of you? And I'm not sure which is worse. Right, that, right, that he can't, meaning he doesn't have the ability to care for you, or that he won't, meaning he doesn't care enough about you to do so. Either way, they're both absolutely not true. I mean, has Jesus not already taught the heirs of God's kingdom to pray, give us this day our daily bread? So will that prayer taught by Jesus himself to his disciples be mocked by the Almighty the all-knowing, the all-powerful God? I don't think so. Reason number one, your life is about more than the physical. And God knows it. So you're commanded to focus on the spiritual and trust Him to take care of the physical. Reason number two, your life has a definite duration. Look at verse 27. Jesus asked the question, And which of you, by being anxious, by being worried, can add a single hour to his span of life? The answer to that question is obviously no one. No one can actually add a single hour to their life. But what's Jesus' point? Is it simply that worrying doesn't get you anything? I think Jesus' point is far more profound than that. Because he's highlighting that our entire lives are in God's hands. So God's sovereign over every single day of our life. And he's sovereign over it all the way from the birth date to the death date. Psalm 139 makes this abundantly clear. The psalmist says, I praise you, O God, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. You form my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's wombs. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance. That's all talking about our birth date. But then the psalmist goes on to say, and in your book were written 
all the days that were ordained for me before there was but one. So our days are numbered. They're numbered from beginning to end. God knows our birth date. God knows our death date before we ever take a single breath. Which is why Psalm 90 says, teach us to number our days so that we might present to you, O God, a heart of wisdom. But a heart that is wise to what? Well, wise to the reality that our life is about more than the physical. It's about the spiritual. And wise to the reality that our life has a definite duration. So God knows the beginning from the end, and He plans each and every step to fulfill His good purposes for you and through you. So you experience your greatest good, and He receives His greatest glory. Which means you literally have everything that you need. Psalm 84 says, No good thing does God withhold from His Beloved, you have everything that you need. So that means if you don't have it, money, job, spouse, kids, cancer, health issues, the good or the bad, then you don't need it. And if you do have it, if you do have it, money, job, spouse, kids, cancer, health issues, the good and the bad, then it's for your good. And it's for God's glory. That you might walk through the good, that you might walk through the bad in a God-glorifying, God-exalting way. You have absolutely everything that you need for God to fulfill His good purpose, not only for you, but through you. Isn't that glorious? So then what should you do? You should relax. You should take it down a notch. You should rest. Now be clear about what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that you shouldn't work. You should work. You should work out your salvation with fear and trembling. But the glory of the gospel is that you can work out your salvation with fear and trembling, and you can still rest. You can rest in the Lord. You can relax. And you can enjoy the ride. Because when it's over, He's going to take you all the way home to be with Him for all eternity, where there is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore, Psalm 1611. Because God is sovereign, your life has a definite duration, and God is good. He knows that it's about more than the physical. And he has graciously provided absolutely everything that you need. Hence, illustration number two. The lilies of the field, verse 28. And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven... Will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? So again, another argument from lesser to greater. So if God clothes the lilies of the field, then how much more will he clothe you? 
But, but notice the details. You get, you get more details here. Verse 29. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. So God not only provides, but he provides in such a way that he is abundantly generous. Now that might not match up with all of your wants, but he provides abundantly, generously, lavishly exactly what you need. So what's the overall point at this point in this passage? Well, I would suggest that the takeaway is that God is sovereign and God is good. So he's sovereign over your birth date. He's sovereign over your death date. He's sovereign over the details of your life. And he's sovereignly working in you and through you for your greatest good and his greatest glory. God is sovereign. But God is also good. So he promises to faithfully provide all your needs. Not your wants, but your needs. Food and water, shelter and clothing. He provides for all of your needs. And he uses the birds of the air and the lilies of the field for you to know he abundantly is generous to you to go above and beyond what you could ever hope or imagine. You have everything that you need because he is sovereign and he is good. So what should you do? Number one, you should trust God's provision. Now, I have no doubt that you sit there and you say, I do. I do. I, I, I do trust God's provision. But then here's the question. Then why are you anxious? Why are you afraid? Why are you so worried about so many things? Here's why. Because you're trying to control the results. You're trying to guarantee a certain outcome that you believe is what's best for you or what's best for others. You're trying to control those results. But Jesus is trying to help us understand that it's only when we take our lives out of God's good and perfect hands and have them under our own control that we find ourselves gripped with anxiety, fear, and worry. So the secret to freedom from anxiety and the remedy for worry that Jesus is arguing for, so, so right thinking which results in right living and right feelings is to joyfully embrace being in God's hands. So de delighting yourself in his good and perfect provision and trusting in the two glorious truths that he's highlighted. The fact that God is sovereign and God is good. You know, for me, I like to think about those two glorious truths, the sovereignty of God and the goodness of God, as two big, massive oak trees. Because oak trees are big and solid, steady, and immovable. So what do you do when you have two big, solid, steady, immovable oak trees right next to each other? You put up a hammock. And you rest. You relax. You delight. God's remedy for anxiety, number one, trust 
God's good and sovereign provision. Now number two, prioritize God's kingdom. If you would follow along as I read, starting in verse 31. Again, Jesus commands, therefore do not be anxious. Notice, he's saying it again. Verse 31, therefore do not be anxious, saying what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Do you see the exact same command, right? We saw it, verse 25. Look at verse 25. Therefore, not, do not be anxious. Verse 31, therefore, do not be anxious. We're going to see it one more time. Verse 34, therefore, do not be anxious. And again, just like the first section, we're given two reasons why. But the context hasn't changed. We're still talking about the basic necessities of life. Look at verse 31. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? So the essentials, food, drink, and clothing. But what are the reasons here why we should not be anxious? Well, reason number one, for or because the Gentiles seek after all these things and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. Reason number two, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And when you do all these things, these basic necessities of life will be added to you because God knows that you need them. So if you trust God's provision, you'll actually be freed up to prioritize God's kingdom. Let's unpack the reasons, starting with reason number one. True believers in Christ live gloriously different than the world around them, which has to include not worrying like the world worries. So to be anxious is not only to be a person of little faith, verse 30, it's to be pagan, verse 32. So if we worry like the world worries, then it becomes immediately evident and obvious that we're pursuing and we're prioritizing the exact same things that the world is pursuing and prioritizing. And if that's true, then we have stopped prioritizing the things of God. So what does that mean on a practical level? Well, it means our worries should not sound like the worries of the world. So when a Christian faces the pressures of a test or an exam, do they grumble and complain just like the unbelieving student next to them? Or when a believer is short on cash, even related to the basic necessities of life, do they grumble and complain with the exact same words, the same tone, the same bad attitude as the unbeliever right next to them? Do you hear what I'm saying? In other words, believers in Christ should live gloriously different than the world around us. And that should be evident and obvious in very real and in very practical ways, including your entire priority system. Because when you truly believe God will supply all your needs, then you're freed up to prioritize God's kingdom. And that really does look like something. What do you think that looks like? Well, I think it looks like peace. I think it looks like patience. I think it looks like kindness, contentment, tranquility. I think it looks like generosity because you're not worried that God's not going to provide for you. You trust Him to provide, which frees you up to be generous. 
You know, in D.A. Carson's commentary, he tells this story that in the fourth century, the Roman emperor Julian the Apostate failed to suppress Christianity. So essentially, the good news of the gospel was being faithfully proclaimed, and more and more Romans were coming to faith and growing in grace. One of the reasons why that was happening is because the Christians were living so gloriously different than the people around them, to such an extent that the emperor told his officials, and I quote, I am quoting what the emperor said to his officials. The emperor said, we ought to be ashamed of ourselves. Not a beggar is to be found among those Galileans, talking about the Christians. So they not only feed their own people, but they feed ours as well. Well, whereas our people, talking about the Romans, receive absolutely nothing from one another and no assistance from us at all. Now, our text is obviously talking about anxiety. But wouldn't it be absolutely awesome if Time Magazine or the Anxiety and Depression Association of America was forced to publish an article that said, and I quote, we ought to be ashamed of ourselves because there's not a worrier or an anxious person to be found among those fanatics who call themselves Christians. So not only are they content and at peace with all the pressures of life that we face, in addition, they seem totally at ease with the additional pressures that we put on them. And not only do they handle it well, but then they go and give comfort to the rest of the world that is worrying. And all of that in contrast to us non-Christians who seek treatment, take medication, and visit counselors, and yet somehow we're still mass-producing ulcers one after another at an overwhelming and alarming rate. Wouldn't that be great to read that article? Wouldn't it be great if our lives were lived in such glorious contrast with the world. Reason number one, true believers live gloriously different than the world. And please be clear when I say that, because Jesus is not talking about some sort of artificial exterior hypocritical peace and comfort that is somehow pasted on and fake but instead one that flows sincerely from reason number two, that true believers actually prioritize God and the things of God. Let's look at what Jesus says in verse 33. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So recognize the significance of what Jesus is saying here. Because if worldly people are constantly seeking after the necessities of life, food and drink, shelter and clothing, and they already have them, and yet they're struggling with anxiety, then it must be true that anxiety can never be cured just by getting a little more of what we already have. So many people think that. That more is always better. More money, more time, more buffer in my schedule, more stored away for my retirement. If I just get a little bit more, then I won't be worried. Then I won't be anxious. Then I won't be fearful of the uncertainty of tomorrow. But instead, anxiety can only be actually cured by the assurance and the confidence we have in the Lord Jesus that God will supply all of our needs. 
So living rightly in the kingdom of God starts when we're wholeheartedly trusting not only the provision of King Jesus, but the authority of King Jesus. So what does it mean to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness? Well, it means making God's priorities your priorities. That's not a once and done kind of thing, but an ongoing, never-ending, persistent perseverance towards the things of God, which of course starts with godliness in your own life. That's what it means to seek first his righteousness. But it also extends to the people around you. That's obvious from the entire Gospel of Matthew. One of Matthew's main goals is to highlight Jesus as the King of Kings, who through his death, burial, and resurrection has all authority in heaven and on earth. What are we called and commanded to do as followers of King Jesus? You know this, Matthew 28. Go therefore. And make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that Jesus has commanded, including the command three times over to not be anxious, but to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. So prioritizing God's kingdom above and beyond anything else in life. So here's the question. Are you really trusting God's provision? Are you really resting in God's good and perfect plan for your life? Are you truly content in what he has for you? And if you're not, if you recognize, I worry and I'm anxious and I'm fearful, then the solution is not to just try to fix your feelings. Stop feeling like that. That's not the solution. The solution is right thinking. Why am I feeling how I'm feeling? What's the thinking behind that feeling? And am I thinking rightly? Am I remembering that God is sovereign and God is good? That God will take care of all of my needs. So I'm freed up to prioritize the kingdom of God. Are you getting that this morning? You need to understand that right thinking leads to right living, including right feelings. Let me ask you, are you prioritizing God's kingdom? Are you striving to grow in godliness? Are you making every effort to put sin to death, including the sin of anxiety, and walk in righteousness? Are you seeking to make God known to others? Are you going? Are you sharing? Are you speaking up for the things of God? Or are you cowering in unbelief? You see, God's remedy for anxiety is directly related to your priorities. So if you're seeking first His kingdom and His righteousness, wholeheartedly trusting God's good and perfect provision for your life, then you don't have any worries. You don't have a worry in the world. Now, does that mean that you won't have difficulties in life? Of course not. You're going to have difficulties in your life, but for every daily difficulty, there will be daily grace. That's number three. 
to embrace God's timing. Look at how Jesus closes in verse 34. He says, Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble, its own difficulties. So again, the command, do not be anxious. But this time, Jesus gives us specific timing. Don't be anxious about tomorrow. Why is that? Well, it's because there's always going to be difficulties in this life. So Jesus isn't saying, if you seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, then you won't have any problems at all. He's not saying that. That's ridiculous. He's saying there's going to be daily problems. So every single day you wake up, there's going to be a number of things that you can count on. And one of those things is difficulties. Isn't that exactly what Jesus is saying? Verse 34, sufficient for the day is its own troubles, its own difficulties. So with every new day, there are guaranteed to be new difficulties. But here's the glory of the gospel. And the glory of how our loving Heavenly Father works in and through our lives. Because for every daily difficulty, God will provide daily grace. Therefore, Jesus says, do not be anxious about tomorrow. I mean, you can if you want. Many of you absolutely love to be worried about tomorrow. You love to worry about the unknown. You love to worry about the hypothetical. You're always sitting there waiting for the other shoe to drop, for something to go wrong. And so what do you do? You worry. You have anxiety. Here's what God wants for us. He wants us to know that for every daily difficulty, there will be daily grace. Now, unfortunately, you can't get that grace in advance. Because that's the first thing we would ask him for. Could I get like three days worth of grace? Then I would know at least for the next three days I'm all set. No, no. Daily difficulties, daily grace. Which means you have to daily depend on God. You have to daily trust God's provision. You have to daily prioritize God's kingdom. And you have to daily embrace God's timing. Which means that you have to daily fight for right thinking so that you might daily experience right living. You know, we need to get into the daily habit of turning to God whenever we feel anxiety or worry or fear so that it's a conditioned reflex. Do you know what that is? A natural reflex is when you're cooking in the kitchen and you accidentally touch the hot stove. What do you do when you accidentally touch the hot stove? Do you have to think about what you're going to do? Do you need to be prepared or trained for what you need to do? No, the natural reaction when you touch a hot stove is you pull your hand away. That is a natural reflex. But a conditioned reflex is one that requires training. It requires practice, like stopping at a red light or speeding up to get through a yellow light, right? Or standing for the star-spangled banner or cheering for the Green Bay Packers, right? <laughs> Those reactions aren't natural to you in New England. They need to be cultivated, right? <laughs> so in the same way, we need to cultivate a conditioned reflex so that in the midst of worry, anxiety, and fear, we immediately turn to God. And we think rightly about who he is, that God is sovereign and that God 
is good. So I can trust God's provision, which frees me up to prioritize God's kingdom. And that I can know that when these daily difficulties come, there will be daily grace so that I can live my life for his glory and honor and praise. And by God's grace, may we be a people who are known for it. You know, James Scott Montgomery Boyce tells this story about a first century Christian named Titidius Amerinos. Now, what you need to know about his name is that the first part is actually his name. Titidios is his name. But the second part, Arminios, Armerinos, is his title. So similar to Frederick the Great or, or James the Just or Ivan the Terrible. Now, prior to him being given this title, this man was well known for being a man who worried about absolutely everything. But when he came to faith in the Lord Jesus, they started calling him Titidios Amerinos. Titidios, his first name. Amerinos, his title. Do you know what Amerinos means? It means the man who stopped worrying. Isn't that awesome? Prior to coming to faith in Christ, his life was characterized by anxiety and worry and fear. After he puts his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, he's well known as the man who stopped worrying. By God's grace, may that be true of us. That because of our faith in the Lord Jesus and our trust in God's provision and our priorities being in God's kingdom and our ability to embrace God's timing, that we would be a people who are well known as those who stopped worrying. Because we trust in God and we prioritize God's kingdom. Allow me to pray to that end. Father, there's not a single person in this room who doesn't struggle with anxiety and worry. Might not be food and drink, might not be clothing or shelter. But Lord, we confess there are things in our lives that cause us anxiety. There's things that we worry about. Lord, I pray that you would be doing a good work, that we would be a people who have right thinking, that we would be a people who know, have the conviction that God is sovereign and God is good so we can trust God's provision in all the details, that we can know that we have absolutely everything that we need, that we can be freed up who be, to be a people who prioritize God's kingdom and to be a people that know, who are realistic, that recognize, yes, there's going to be daily difficulties, but there will always be daily grace. So, Father, we're asking that you do that good work in our minds so that there might be that good work in our hearts. Do that good work, we pray, for our good and for your eternal glory. Amen.